What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and my guest today needs no introduction. I got the one and only Jimmy Moore. How you doing, Jimmy? What's up? <laughs> How you doing, man? I am well, man. Just uh, enjoying the cooler weather while it lasts because summertime is coming. Where are you located now? I live in South Carolina. South Carolina. I got uh, I got family in North Carolina. It's not too far from ah, me. Ah, and you're in Arkansas, right? Yep, yep. So I'm I'm little ways, little ways. So we're Southern boys. We'll, we'll get along today. Absolutely, man. So <laughs> for anybody that, that doesn't know Jimmy Moore, what's a what's a little bio for you? Yeah. So the the long and short of it is, I used to weigh 410 pounds and was on three prescription medications for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, breathing problems. I was a ticking time bomb dude at about 32 years old and really never gave a crap about my health. And my mother-in-law decides to give me a diet book for Christmas. Gee, thanks, Mom. Uh, I know I'm fat. Um, yeah. <laughs> and But she gave me this book that totally and radically uplifted me from everything I thought I ever knew about nutrition and health. And it was Dr. Atkins's book, the Dr. Atkins New Diet Revolution, read that book from cover to cover and thought the guy was a complete wackadoodle. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, really, really? You, you eat more fat in your diet, Mr. Cardiologist, Dr. Atkins. Uh, don't you know that's the very substance that blocks our arteries and gives us heart attacks and we could die? Uh, really cut our carbs? Seriously? How are we supposed to have any energy at all if we're not eating carbohydrates? So it was literally challenging every position I had ever believed about health and, and nutritional health that, that I'd learned my entire life watching my mama. I was a kid of the 1980s and my mama, she bought into a hook, line and sinker. And so uh, watched her. And so every time I wanted to, quote, lose weight or get healthy, I knew the thing that I had to do was cut my fat grams, cut my calories and then exercise till I dropped. But you and I both know, Robert, that doesn't sustain. You feel miserable. Um, you know, never mind working out in a gym. Oh, my gosh. With what you do, lifting weights, that would be miserable in a low-fat, high-carb state. And yet that's exactly what so many of us did and, and some people still do. So I read this book, Dr. Atkins' uh, New Diet Revolution, totally changed my perspective. I'm like, well, what the heck? I tried every diet known to mankind except for this one. And so I gave it a go in 2004 was when I uh, discovered this. And in that year, I lost 180 pounds on my body. I was able to come off of all three of those prescription medications and never go back on another medication again. Uh, that's huge. Yeah. And it started off as a weight loss journey uh, that year. You know, everybody does uh, New Year's resolutions to lose weight what it turned into was a new life resolution to get healthy. And so I got really super passionate about it uh, in, at the end of that year. And in 2005, started the Living La Vida Low Carb blog, which, uh, yes, I was a fan of Ricky Martin. Yes, he was relevant at the time. Uh, he's not so much anymore. <laughs> What's funny, Robert, is if you Google Living La Vida Loca, 
you actually find my blog and my podcast and stuff now. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny to me because uh, I, I was I would love Ricky Martin's bunny though, uh, but um, it was a fun uh, a moniker. It got people in, and a year later, this guy said, "If you talk half as good as you write, you need to be a podcaster." Now, this was 2006. There was nobody podcasting in the health realm. And I'm like, I don't know how to do this. And he's like, don't worry, uh, just go out there and just be you. And so uh, thankfully, that producer that saw something in me um, that, you know, I listened to him and, and we started this thing that has now become the longest running health podcast on the Internet. It's called the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. Uh, 1,400 episodes and counting, and that thing is never going away. Um, and I've since created other resources as well. Uh, to support people doing ketogenic diets. Uh, I've got some that talks about biohacking. I've got another one that talks about general nutrition. I stay busy with podcasts five days a week now. Um, and then, oh yeah, by the way, I write a bunch of books as well. The last three, uh, all three of the last ones that I wrote have become international best-selling uh, books. So it's it's pretty cool to think this guy that was just a former morbidly obese guy, uh, fat dude, on a bunch of drugs and probably on a one-way ticket to dying uh, has changed his life and hopefully is changing the lives of other people now. That That's the beauty of it, man. Like what you, you were motivated to make a change for yourself. Then you were so, I don't know, driven by that, that you were compelled to help others, you know, experiencing, experience something similar as yourself. And then, I mean, I mean, literally you were, you were the introduction for me to get on keto and it's been history ever since, you know? That's cool. I, I think a lot it. of people have said that too. Like a lot of people say that, you know, your book Keto Clarity was like the introduct introductory factor um, that got them involved in that in the first place. You know, that book almost never happened. Uh, my publisher, they came to me in 2012 and they were like, we love your platform. We want to give you some uh, a book. What do you want to write about? And this was 2012. I said, ketogenic diets. It's the next huge thing. You need to be ahead of it. And I want to write a book about it. Uh, that's too much of a niche of a niche. We don't think anybody's going to be interested in that. And of course, paleo was kind of ruling the roost at the time. They were primarily a paleo publisher at the time. And I said, you're so wrong. Uh, so they were like, what else you got? Uh, okay. Uh, how about the cholesterol issues? So then they let me write a book called Cholesterol Clarity, which I got my feet wet writing for a major publisher. I had self-published a couple of books, but this was my first time with a major publisher. So I'm I'm kind of in hindsight glad that they had me do the cholesterol one first, because before you start talking about a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet, you kind of have to put aside that concern that people have about heart disease risk and high cholesterol and then this bad. So we did. We wrote a whole book about it before Keto Clarity even came. Um, and the, and the cholesterol clarity book did pretty decently when it came out in 2013. And I said, can I please write the keto book now so I can prove you wrong? <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and we did. And so keto clarity was truly my heart. Um, I wrote and reread and rewrote probably a hundred times that manuscript, Robert, because I wanted it to be so perfect. I wanted it to speak layman language while communicating very difficult terminology that, you know, most of these sciencey books about keto that are out there, it's great if you already understand it. But I assumed people that would be reading my book didn't know anything. And so I literally, at a very elementary, basic 
language tried to to write it that way and it's it's been so incredibly gratifying you know here we are four years later and it's still selling really well people really like it and it's still kind of known as kind of the ketogenic bible entry-level bible for people Uh, oh yeah by the way the first week it came out keto clarity outsold cholesterol clarity in the whole first year in one week wow that's crazy needless to say the publisher was like Dang it, you were right. <laughs> Revenge, now, sweet. look at all the books they're doing now. They've, they've, they've literally got all the best-selling keto books and lots more in the in the pipeline. Well, I think what really stood out when I read it is like, you know, if you just read the, the, the about the diet at face value, you, you kind of automatically turned against it because it just goes counter to what you've been told and, and heard your whole life. But, I mean, you broke down why you're told that, and that kind of opened yes. my eyes, you know. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, the chapter where we talked about a lot of the objections that people have to a, a ketogenic diet, um, a lot of people appreciated that too. What, what about your thyroid? Isn't it going to blow your thry- thyroid up? And, you know, aren't you going to slow down your metabolism? And all these things that people just believe because societally we've been told these things. Isn't this very acidic for your body and you're going to go into ketoacidosis? So we addressed all of those concerns. I'm going to try to update it in 2019, Robert, to add some of the new stuff that's come out in the, you know, for the five-year anniversary. So I'm working with my publisher about doing a a five-year anniversary update that'll revise and and update it. That'd be sweet, man. I would read that one for sure. Cool. So so what, uh, I mean, kind of just talk about like the evolution of what you've built here. Because I mean, you pretty much like the foundation. I mean, you've, you've, bridge the gap for so many people that have wanted to get into the space, wanted to get involved. And, and now, I mean, it all, all leads back to you, Jimmy. Well, and I appreciate that. I, I am a pay it forward kind of guy. And you, you know me well enough now that I will give you the shirt off my back if you needed it. And I just feel like when people have success and they, they are able to lift others up, how much more gratifying is it that you can, you know, reach down and say, hey, I see you're doing good things there. Let's pull you up. And and I've been able to do that for so many people. And it's it's been a blessing in my life to see the success in these other people. Uh, and I remember a few years back, Robert, that people were like, well, I don't ever want to start a podcast because I kept urging people, hey, if you got a voice, go start a podcast, uh, you know, write books, write a blog, do something. And people are like, well, I can't really compete with you and all the stuff you do. I'm like, no, no, no. There's people that hate Jimmy Moore. Believe it or not, they do. uh, That won't listen to me, but maybe they'll listen to you. So I'm really happy that you have this podcast now and you're getting your voice out there. Uh, I fully support everybody because a rising tide still lifts all ships the last time I checked. And keto, as much as we're seeing a lot of popularity in our culture now with it, it's still just a very uh, small segment of the whole society. So we don't have time to bicker amongst each other and be uh, enemies. We need to bound together. The vegans have done that very well. You hardly ever see one vegan go after another vegan. They are all on the same message. They're all preaching the same thing. You don't have like we have some in our community pushing high protein keto, uh, when keto is actually a high fat, 
Whereas in the vegan world, you know, nobody's saying, oh, well, we want you to have, you know, this particular segment of veganism, you know, all potatoes all the time. That's all you can eat. No, no, no. They're all in the same the legumes and blah, 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 blah. And they're just right down the line with their message. And so I thought I think if the keto community coalesced around those things that are absolutely true about keto, we would get a lot further along in this culture. I agree. I mean, I think I mean, I think people just need to have, you know, abundance mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset. Like there's, I mean, keto is such a unique niche and it is growing like wildfire right now. But I mean, I truly believe that if everybody's, you know, looking out for everybody's best interest, then we're all going to, like you said, you know, the rising tide raises all ships. Yep. That's my motto. So, so what are you, I mean, what are you excited about now? What are you working on now? Like there's, I mean, you got your hands in all kinds of things. What, what really gets you excited? So there's so many things I'm excited about. I have three new books coming uh, over the next year, maybe a fourth one. It's still in the in the works. Um, and then I also have a new podcast that I recently started on Fridays that kind of mixes the best of ketogenic diets with some biohacks. And so I, I know I've been on some of your Instagram lives and telling you about this, these fasts that I've been doing. So I just ended a seven-day fast uh, my second one in three weeks, I'm going to take a couple weeks off and then I'm going to go right back and do another seven day fast. I, I'm finding Robert where, yes, I had an incredible 180 pound weight loss in 2004 and I came off of all those prescription medications and my health markers have stayed pretty darn good now for all these years later, 14 years later, but the weight tended to creep back on a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I think people always equate when you gain weight that you're becoming incredibly unhealthy. Well, that's not necessarily true. You can have incredible health markers and still have a little extra weight on the body. But I'm working on things that would move the needle on the weight. And and these longer fasts have been doing the trick. Um, I'm not weighing myself. I think the scale is a lying liar that lies. And people need to take a sledgehammer to their scale. and, And instead you know, do measurements, do how you feel, look at how your clothes start fitting, where maybe they were snug before, maybe they're looser now. So those are kind of the the heart songs of everything that I'm doing in my work now is trying to get people to get off of weight loss as the measurement for how well they're doing on their keto and fasting journey. And instead, look at all these other markers that to me are a lot more valuable. I agree with that. I tell all my clients to put a lot more emphasis on how you look, feel, and perform over what the scale says, you know, as a standalone. Yes. Yep. So, talk, talk about the seven-day fast. I'm curious here. I know you're working with Dr. Lemansky and, and kind of doing like the biohacking thing. What what research has compelled you to do the seven-day fast? Kind of what are some of the things you've noticed? Just walk me through that. Well, I wrote a whole book about this subject called The Complete Guide to Fasting with Dr. Jason Bung and in talking with him uh, in preparation for that book, I was like, you know, Hey, I really would love to see a resource that would help people do some of these longer fasts. And he said, really, there isn't one, which is why we wrote that book. Now we talk about intermittent fasting and alternate day fasting and the, the insulin connection and why you're doing this. Uh, so we got real geeky and the complete guide to fasting, but why do I do it now? Because it's the thing that always, whenever I find myself not able to move the weight at all. It's the, it's the one thing so far that has always moved the weight. And, and so, and what I found because of the insulin resistance that I deal with Robert is 
I think people that, that they eat keto, they do it perfectly fine. They're getting great ketone readings, great blood sugar, and yet the weight doesn't come off. They're usually doing intermittent fasting. They've sometimes pushed it to 24 to 36 hours and the weight just doesn't come off. And so what moves the needle is going more than three, five, maybe up to seven to 10 days starts to move the needle. And I, I've done three 21 day fasts now. Uh, and those were, mm, you know, varying levels of difficulty. <laughs> 21 days straight? 21 days uh, of fasting. Yes. That's insane. Like what, what's a, like, do you just do water or do you like take in electrolytes? Like what's so, the protocol? So th that's the thing. So when I was doing the 21 days, it was kind of early on in me trying to do these longer fasts. And I thought I needed bone broth and maybe some kombucha and some other things. And what I didn't realize was I was sabotaging my efforts. So I struggled through a bunch of those. And the conclusion that I came to uh, and after talking with Dr. Lemansky, he's like, you know, if you really want to see this be as successful as it can be and minimize the hunger and minimize some of the other things that would inevitably come on, just do water and pink Himalayan, Himalayan sea salt and or electrolyte supplementation. There's a there's a good one out there called Keto Vitals. Have you seen that one? Yeah. Yeah. I, I know the owner. He's super cool, dude. Yeah. Yeah. So. So I've used uh, all of that when I did these last two seven-day fasts, had absolutely zero bone broth, no kombucha, no nothing. And uh, one of the common questions that came up when I was sharing about this, can you have fatty coffee, bulletproof coffee when you're fasting? I'm like, um, let's think this through. Fasting means zero calories or at least minimal calories. A bulletproof coffee has what? I don't drink coffee, but five, 600 calories? Yeah, mine's got at about least, 600. <laughs> at least? And so and I see you guys drinking your coffee in the morning. And so you're getting nutrition from that. Yes, you're drinking it. You're not eating it, but it's still calories going into your body mm -hmm. in the form of fat. And will it impact your insulin? Probably not. But will you get some of the autophagy results, the anti-aging results? Probably not. And so, so yeah, so the, the big lesson that I've learned and that I'm continuing to apply with these future fasts is water and salt, water and salt water and salt. And that's the secret to my success. I haven't weighed, but I know I've probably dropped 25 pounds. Do you notice like when you start the fast, I mean, do you notice kind of like it going through stages? Like, okay, it's day one. I notice a little bit more of a headache or, you know, day three now I feel more energy. Like what are some right. things that you start noticing? So here's the thing. I, when I first started doing these fasts, Robert, day two sucked. Day one was easy because when you're keto, you're already kind of intermittent fasting anyway. And so it's super easy to get through 24 hours when you've gone fully keto adapted. So if you're listening to this and you've never fasted before, I would not go right from centered American diet to fasting. Uh, I would at least go keto mm -hmm. <laughs> to mitigate the pain. So because I've been keto for so long, day one never, ever has been an issue. It's day two that's always been the bugaboo for me. And I would get into day two and my body would say, all right, dude, We've usually eaten by now. What's going on? It'll start to create, you know, little little noises in the stomach. Not hunger, but just noises, gurgles, tapping on my brain saying, okay, it's time to eat, dummy. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go. And what I found was if you can resist that little urge that happens in that day two and sometimes for people day three, then you get beyond that. It's very minimal. It's very fleeting. But then here's the fun part. You get past day three. 
you now have kicked in the autophagy benefits that come from long-term fasting. And day four, five, six, and seven, there is zero hunger, full energy. I mean, it's the most unbelievable thing you would ever witness. Now, I know you have a, a tight workout schedule that you stick to and staying out of the gym might seem a little daunting for a period of time, but I think you would be so shocked, Robert, that by day four, five, six, seven of a fast, you would feel so good uh, that you would want to keep going. It, it's pretty amazing. So, so I have made it these seven days. Um, and in the past, day two was hard and into day three. These last two fasts, I think because it's like riding a bicycle, I've done it so much, my body kind of knows what, what to expect now. Day two didn't hurt at all. Day three didn't hurt at all. It was like glorious the last two times I've done it. So that's telling me that my body is becoming very comfortable with this idea of going on periodic longer fasts for the purposes of anti-aging, autophagy, and of course, fat loss. What do you think, um, like for me, for instance, if I was going to just do a seven day fast, what would I expect from like a, you know, bodybuilding perspective? Do you think my performance would suffer or what, what do you predict? So during the fast, I, uh, we don't recommend doing activity because that will be an added stressor. Um, so if you do decide to do some of your glycolytically demanding strength training, uh, or hit or, you know, whatever your, your routine is, just know you're going to get hungry. Mm -hmm. And so that exercise is a stressor in the midst of trying to do this. And the way I see this is it's basically uh, you're doing this for a very minimal amount of time. And so if you wanted to do a seven day fast, I would say don't exercise, um, get through the seven days. And then once your seven days is over and you go back to your lifting routine again, at that point, that first day, you'll likely see a decrease, a diminished strength from what you were before the fast. But by two to three days after the fast, you will see actually an increase in your strength. Okay, I'm going to have to try that. I'm, I'm intrigued for sure because I've always... I know, would love to hear your results on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've been wanting to document like do like a seven-day vlog series of like just a, a week of fasting from a bodybuilder's yes. perspective because, I mean, there's nothing out there from a bodybuilding perspective. Well, and see, here's the interesting thing for you because you're used to taking in thousands of calories in a day. I've seen some of those big plates of meat you eat, dude. So, <laughs> so you eat a lot of food. So it, it's interesting because... I'm a big boy, but I'm not a bodybuilder, uh, and I have a certain amount of food, and I go without the food. But I would be really intrigued to see how someone like yourself, um, you're not putting in that whatever it is, three to 4,000-ish calories that you're having a day, uh, how you do with fasting. And so uh, my number is on speed dial if you need to talk to me when you start going through that. <laughs> yeah, I might take you up on that for sure. What, what what do you notice when you start eating again? Like when you reintroduce food, does your is your hunger more amplified? So today uh, is officially the first full day after I ended a fast. So I ate last night, and it's a great question, by the way, is your hunger more amplified? The, the quick answer is no. So that first meal, everybody thinks, oh, you haven't eaten for seven days. You're going to be ravenous. And actually, the exact opposite is what happens. Because your stomach you, is shrunk. Well, well, tip, uh, technically, your stomach has not shrunk. Everybody believes that. We talk about this in Complete Guide to Fasting. But, but you 
your appetite regulating system has changed. And so whereas you think you're hungry, um, you, you have hunger when you're eating, it's usually it's thirst. Uh, when you think you have hunger, it's actually thirst. Your body's telling, trying to tell you to drink, but people eat because they think it's hunger or they hear gurgles in their stomach. Oh, I'm hungry, but it really wasn't that. And so coming off of a fast, eat a little something. So I had one of those drop an F-bomb mm-hmm. macadamia nut. I love the sea salt, uh, chocolate caramel or whatever it's called, uh, macadamia nut butter from the drop an F-bomb people. And I had that about an hour before I ate my meal. And then we were traveling a little bit, so I got a Ruby Tuesday hamburger and their salad bar. And I would usually be able to eat maybe a double um, hamburger, like two of them, and and maybe like a really huge salad. I, I could only eat the one burger and about half that salad that I did, um, and I was plenty full. And and then And this morning when I woke up, I had a normal bowel movement. So you would think, oh my gosh, you haven't eaten in forever. That food's going to take forever to get out. Uh Uh-uh. You just cleared seven days over the last seven days. You cleared your bowel. It was ready for food. And so I had a nice uh, uh, first poop, basically. Um, And and then, you know, here's the interesting thing too. When you fasted for this long, your thinking on meals totally changed. uh, Because whereas you might have eaten three meals before, You'll wake up the next morning like I did this morning and go, I'm not hungry. And you'll go through the day and go, I'm not hungry. Even though you're allowed to eat, your body has so gotten used to not eating that it really does change a lot of things metabolically for the better so that you're not so obsessing about food. And that really, you, I guess, Robert, the thing that it does is it gets you more in tune with what real hunger actually is. Yeah, I can definitely... Agree with that. Like when I've done, you know, competition preps in the past and I've just deprived my body for, you know, four, five, six months at a time, there's definitely a difference between what hunger is versus what like starvation is. And a lot of people think they're starving when they're just merely hungry and their body definitely does not need the food that they're taking in. And I love uh, the, the, when people criticize fasting and they say, oh, you're starving yourself. So there's a, a great way that we distinguish between starving and fasting. Starving, you have no control. You have uh, no availability to get to food. You're basically uh, being forced into not eating. And so you have no choice about it. That's starvation. In fasting, you have complete control. You decide if you need to end it at any moment. So control versus not control. That's kind of the basic difference between fasting and starvation. What, what, uh, like, have you tested your blood glucose and ketones and everything throughout? Yeah. So on the seven day fast, I, uh, that I did with Dr. Lemansky that we aired the results. We did a whole two part series of all the results on ketohackingmd.com. Um, back in, I think episode four and five is what it was. So we talked about blood sugar going down, uh, blood ketones coming up. And of course, Dr. Lemansky is pretty darn lean. So he started, you know, his blood sugar started, Robert, at 67. (laughs) And then his blood ketones were already like three or four. And I'm going, golly, I start. Meanwhile, insulin resistant Jimmy Moore, uh, (laughs) 
I was at 106 in my blood sugar because I always tend to have that higher level in the morning that some keto people have. And I definitely want to talk about that with you here in a second. Um, and then the uh, the blood ketones, I want to say it was like 0.8. Mm-hmm. So I was on a lower end of blood ketones, a little bit elevated blood sugar. By the second day, my blood sugar had dropped 10 points. By the day three, it dropped another 10 points. Uh Deep within to the fast, it got down into the 70s, the 60s, and then I hit my all-time low blood sugar of 55 during this fast. And people are like, oh my gosh, 55, you're hypoglycemic, you're going to coma. I'm like, not even close. I felt great. Everything was, was rolling for me. John got down into the 40s. And his, and his wife was doing this. We were both wearing this continuous glucose monitor called a Freestyle Libre, mm-hmm. it's now legal in America. And so John's wife had one of those on and hers started like making an alarm at her because hers got so low, it went below 30 in the blood sugar. And so it's kind of a lesson of blood sugar alone doesn't mean anything without the context of what's going on nutritionally in the ketones. So every time the blood sugar went down 10 or 15 points, I saw a correspondingly rise in the blood ketone going up. And so blood sugar comes down, blood ketones go up. And my theory is because you're not eating glucose and fasting, you're not eating anything, um, that the ketone actually steps in the place of where there was blood sugar before. So sugar burners are out there and they got 95, 115, you know, all these blood sugars. Well, keto dieters and people that are fasters you don't need as much blood sugar. People freak out. Oh my gosh, my, my blood sugar is 67. Well, guess what? Maybe that's where your body thrives because your ketones have stepped into place of where those where that blood sugar was before. And so it's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around because they've so obsessed about blood sugar, not realizing that there is another fuel source that's going on in your body and it's called ketones. Yeah, I totally agree. I've got you know a few clients that get concerned when their blood sugar dips below you know, like 70. But I mean, like you said, it's all in context. And if you're on a ketogenic diet, and you, especially if you've been on a ketogenic diet for a while and your body's become efficient at using ketones, the, I mean, lower glucose is nothing to be concerned about. That's right. And it's totally normal. Uh, I try to tell people, okay, a number on a meter telling you that your blood sugar is lower. How do you feel that? I mean, I love what you said, how you look, form and perfe- uh, look perform and feel is a great kind of test for all of this and if you have a a 55 blood sugar and you feel completely fine what are you worried about yeah absolutely what what do you notice when you reintroduce food does your does your numbers crawl back up there relatively quickly yeah well obviously i switched from going uh to not eating any food to eating ketogenic food so my first meal was that hamburger with the salad um and what's interesting about introducing some green uh leafy greens is you now have cleared all of kind of the bad bacteria that have been living in your gut uh, with a seven-day fast. You clean that up. You've detoxified from that. And now you have all of this great, good bacteria just waiting to be fed. So go ahead and feed it in that first meal some of that healthy uh, fiber that they would get from green leafy vegetables. Um, and so I, I felt great eating that food. Um, and... And, you know, like I said, today we'll be adding more food into the uh, rotation. So do you keep the good numbers? Obviously, your numbers will shift 
your blood sugar will go up. But if, I mean, if you went to down to fifties, yeah, <laughs> and I mean, 60s, you're still not going to be that it, high. It goes up to seventies and eighties. Oh darn! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> still looking then, pretty good. Yeah, and then the ketones can get as high as four or five in some people. Uh, I think I had five point four on the very last day of this fast. I did it right before I traveled yesterday. Uh, it was five point four. And, and so the ketones will come down. One really kind of fun thing that I did, Robert, and I might do it while we're, while we're sitting here because I've got it close to me. I blew into one of those back devices. So it's the, the breath alcohol mm-hmm. sobriety test. And what's interesting is when you get like elevated uh, blood ketones above yeah, like registers for alcohol, it'll actually test uh, and it'll show results for ketones. So I, I can't do it on video because there's not video, but I will pull this bad boy out and we will do this live on Keto Savage. So I got <laughs> countdown 25 seconds. So so what it measures uh, um, is acetone. So mm-hmm. that that's the breath ketone. All right, here it comes in a few seconds. Here we go. Now, legally drunk is 0.06. What do you think I blew? Mm, 0.08. Uh, that's a good guess. I got 0.08 uh, last night. I got 0.06 just now. <laughs> yeah, so you, you shouldn't you shouldn't be on a ketogenic diet and then do any crazy driving because they'll assume you're drunk. <laughs> and what's funny is when I started doing research into this, I actually found that there were some uh, skeevy lawyers that they put that on their website. Hey, you want to get out of your DUI? Just tell people you're on a low-carb ketogenic diet. And I'll get you off. I'm yeah. like, oh, I don't know about that, but <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I don't know if that would would, would <laughs> go over too well in some courts of law. No. Um. What What about <clears throat> What about um? You, you mentioned cell, you know, atoph autophagy, um, yep. like cell turnover. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit for anybody that doesn't know? Yeah. So the guy that won the Nobel Prize in Medicine back in 2016, uh he did it for his work in autophagy and what he found was uh, not by the way the the layman's uh, way to explain what autophagy is we have a lot of kind of proteins that float around in the body people don't realize that robert that there's just lots of protein that just floats around the body it doesn't really need to be there but it's got nowhere to go and so sometimes it gets turned into sugar through gluconeogenesis through the liver to uh use for some glucose dependent uh, parts of the body but here's what happens is you got so many of those they got they got to be cleaned up and so the only way to clean them up that this nobel prize winner found was fasting for at least 72 hours so if you fast for a extended period of time then these protein uh things that just kind of float around they have nowhere to go but exit the body and so it cleans them up very naturally uh, very efficiently. It's the biggest reason that I love doing these longer fasts. And when you clean those up, it's almost like you turn over all those cells and you have a brand new Robert Sykes. You have a brand new Jimmy Moore. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I like the new Jimmy Moore because uh, he stops having zip breakouts on his face. Uh, he starts to feel more energetic. Uh, he's got a glow about him because of the regeneration of these new cells. I don't know about you, but you know, if you don't tune up your car for a little while, it's going to start to run sluggish. Well, think of fasting as a tune up for your human body. 
And I think we were built to go periods of time without eating. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors, it just happened naturally for them between animal kills. But they fasted and did it willingly because they had no choice. Now, we don't have to fast because we have such food availability. And yet our genetics tell us we will be more uh, optimal in the way we function if we did choose to fast from time to time. Yeah, I agree. The The day-to-day lifestyle of typical Americans now is so far removed from what we've evolved to perform well at. It, it blows my mind. Yeah, and, and never go to Walmart and watch what people buy. Uh, yeah. It just will disgust you to no end. Yes, I, I agree completely. Um, well, t- talk about, talk about uh, the insulin resistance that you touched on a little bit earlier. Yeah, so for people that basically had a really poor diet, and I I didn't really describe my diet a whole lot for you earlier, but uh, pre-Atkins, but I used to drink, Robert, no lie, 16 cans of Coca-Cola every single day. I was a Coke addict. I I was the better Coke addict, but I don't know about that. Maybe it was a (laughs) toss-up that I maybe I should have done the real Coke instead of Coca-Cola, but <laughs> you probably uh, be skinnier. Exactly. 16 cans a day. I would take, you know, big boxes of like Swiss miss, uh, rolls from the little Debbie mm-hmm. and I would stick those in the freezer and then I would eat the whole box while watching television. I would have big plates of pasta. I would have Taco Bell. I remember the order I used to get was, uh, two bean burritos without onions, add sour cream, five soft taco. I mean, I just went down the list and then of course McDonald's and all these places. And I just ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. Well, here's the thing. When I switched over to the Atkins diet and later to the ketogenic diet, it didn't just magically heal all that damage that happened from that really crappy diet that I had. And I get a lot of heat online from, from haters and trolls that like to say, well, that keto diet must not be uh, successful because Jimmy Moore can't keep his weight off. And, And I'm like, you know what? If you had to go through the healing that I had to go through, you might change your tune a bit. And I often remind people that I had a brother four years older than me. His name was Kevin. And at the age of 32, he had three heart attacks in one week that nearly killed him. Uh, He ended up having a defibrillator eventually put in. And then at the age of 41, he died. 41 years old, morbidly obese, heart disease, obviously, and type 2 diabetes. Had Jimmy Moore not changed his life, I would be in a grave just like my brother was eight years ago, uh, 10 years ago. And so I remind people it's all about context. Where did you come from? You know, if you're relatively healthy and your metabolism, you never ate a crappy diet. Good for you. You were lucky. A lot of us grew up on junk. I mean, my mama, like I said, was a, I was a child of the 80s and she, you know, hook, line and sinker grabbed into that low fat diet. Well, meanwhile, what did she buy? Jimmy and Kevin and our sister Beverly. She bought Blueberry Crunch and Doritos and Hamburger Helper and all of this really crappy food. And it takes a toll, Robert. And I I tell people, yes, keto will heal you and make you the best possible you for the situation you're in. But for some people, this insulin resistance rears its ugly head. So what is this? All those years of having the sugar and the grain type foods bombarding my, my body, every time I did that, 
my pancreas had to squirt out insulin. All right. And so it would push the, the blood sugar into the cells. And then if there was extra sugar, it started packing on the weight. That's how it works. Well, over time, the insulin becomes a little sluggish because it's like, all right, dude, you're killing me. You keep giving me all this sugar and all these carbs to have to deal with, and I can't handle it anymore. So it just lets the blood sugar stay in the blood mm-hmm. without pushing it into the cells. That's when people start to have their blood sugar go up. So that's why you might see 120 in the morning or, you, you know, postprandial of eating a food, you might see a 190, a 220. Well, by that point, if you're getting that kind of a reading after eating, your insulin resistance has gotten so bad that it's turned into type 2 diabetes. So for me, thankfully, it never turned into type 2 diabetes because of keto, but I still have to work at it and work at it hard because of all those poor choices I made in my past. What's the best thing to do? Like, I mean, is there just just continuing the ketogenic diet and letting your body slowly repair itself over time? Or is there like a, a, a limit at what it can actually repair? Are you asking if you can ever fully heal insulin resistance? Because that's a great question to answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. If it, is, is there an answer to that question? Uh, the answer is maybe. Um, and I say maybe only because some people's level of insulin resistance might be so low, like it's just a low level of insulin resistance. I think those people could get turned around. Um, and I think if people become vigilant and remain vigilant in their uh ketogenic nutrition and lifestyle choices that they too can turn things around. But then you've got people like me that are on a little more severe end of things that maybe that's why these extended fasts might be the healing agent that allows the insulin resistance to fully heal. I can tell you this, Robert, since I started doing fasting, I have noticed that my carbohydrate tolerance level has gotten a little higher. So I can have maybe five more grams of carbs and it not impact me. So to me, that's showing signs of insulin resistance healing. But is it fully healed? Not even close yet. Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you track your macros? Are you pretty intuitive with it? Uh, Now I'm intuitive because uh, 2012, 2013, I did an N equals one uh, experiment that I talked all about in Keto Clarity. Uh, where I tracked literally everything every day and tested blood sugar and blood ketones, I probably stay, I hate even using percentages, so please don't mimic Jimmy Moore's percentages, but generally, Robert, mine is somewhere around 75% fat, mm-hmm. uh, and then maybe uh, you know 15% protein, and then, and then about 10% carbohydrate. Gotcha, gotcha. What, uh, I mean, a lot of people... I don't know, like I've got clients and I kind of incorporate different techniques with them, you know, as their body responds to different stimuli. But I've noticed as a whole, the majority of my clients definitely respond better to a higher fat ratio. Yes. Um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think uh, a well-defined, well-formulated ketogenic diet will always, always, did I say always, always be low carb to your tolerance level. So you've got to figure out what that is. You know, for one person that's a little more insulin sensitive, maybe that that low carb, that low is 50. Uh, for someone that with a little more insulin resistance that maybe is very sensitive to the glucose effects of carbohydrates, maybe your total carbs, not net carbs, should be like 20 or 30. 
And mm-hmm. so you've got to figure that out first. Then next comes protein. In a well-formulated ketogenic diet, you moderate down on the protein, not high protein. It, it just, it's hysterical to me that, that there's a group that calls themselves keto and they push a high protein diet. Now, I know you've tested high protein. I'm actually going to test it soon too, by the way. I'm going to eat an all meat diet because this whole carnivore nonsense is out there. Uh, I want to test having, uh, what is it, a three to one ratio of protein to fat. I'm going to be starving, Robert, but I'm going to test it because I want to sh- I want to prove a point. So that's coming soon. Uh, but you have to moderate protein because of the glucose effects that happen. And here's here's the thing to remember. If you're very sensitive to carbohydrates because of the glucose effects, guess what? You're also going to be very sensitive to excessive protein for the same reason. And so that's why you moderate it down. So if you have a low carb intake of 20 to 30 grams, guess what? Your protein's also going to have to be moderated, maybe somewhere around 80 to 100 grams. So you've got to figure out what that is. And then to your question, is it a high fat diet? Absolutely. Fat to satiety, that's where it's at. That's where I tell people that's the fun part of keto. You get to have all of that beautiful real food-based fats. I see those grass-fed sausages that you posted uh, that you love so much. You, you make me want to go buy some now that I can eat. Um, yeah, they're good. Definitely check them out. It sounds like it. And so, yes, fat actually becomes your fuel. And it stands to reason. When you're a sugar burner, your main fuel source is carbohydrate. That's why they tell you to consume 55 to 60% of your calories as as carbohydrate when you're a sugar burner. But when you're a fat burner, you have to cut down on the carbs, yes. You also moderate down the protein, yes. That means your primary fuel source becomes dietary fat. And I want to run optimally on the best kinds of fats. So those best kinds of fats include saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and of course the omega-3 fats are also healthy. And so when you get all of those fats into your body, your body changes. And you know this, Robert, because you live it every day yourself. When you fuel yourself properly with those kinds of fats, you should not get hungry for hours upon hours upon, did I mention hours? I mean, if you're hungry less than six, seven hours after your last meal, guess what? You didn't eat enough fat. You got to bump up the fat. And if you think of fat as your energy now, it really changes the conversation because nobody bats an eye when they're a sugar burner. At, oh, you got to have all this um, carbohydrates for your energy. Well, yeah, you sure do. 2,000 calories worth of energy stored as sugar in your body and you have to refuel. Whereas when you're a fat burner, you have 60, 70, up to 100,000 calories worth of energy at your disposal. That's why you can have a high fat, moderate protein, low carb meal and not feel hunger for so long because your body is getting primed with that fat that you eat so it can tap into the ba- the fat that's on your body. I completely agree. I think, uh, I mean, everybody's like protein and, and carb threshold is going to be a little bit different. Like I don't ever want to just say, okay, you need to be at this ratio. That's yep. the best for everybody. Like I don't have a blanket statement like that. But, you know, like when I get a new client, the first thing I'll do is I'll find their, their protein threshold. And I automatically drop people's carbs down to like 10 or 20 grams total carbs a day. Um, right. So I go really low if the primary goal is, you know, composition improvement and weight loss. What is your take on, you know, if you have extra weight to lose, you need to intake less dietary fat? Because that's, that's kind of like a hot topic right now. 
oh yeah, that 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 comes up again and again. So I think it's insane. Uh, and I know it's because culturally we've been told when you need to lose weight, you've got to cut calories. And we all know fat has nine calories per gram versus protein and carb only have four. So the logical place to, to cut would be in the fat. But again, like I just said, fat is now your fuel source. If anything, I would say cut down on other things first, if you feel like you have to cut down, um, and keep the fat intact because that fat's becoming your fuel. That fat is normalizing hormones. That fat is actually fueling your brain. A lot of people don't realize this, uh, Robert, but your brain is about 70% fat. So, yeah, you're all fat heads, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and it's a good thing, right? And so your, your brain thrives on the ketones. The moment you stop feeding your body adequate amounts of fat, you start having issues pop up um, where – mentally you're just not as sharp because your brain is starving for that fat you know so i'd say if you need to cut anything and maybe you don't we can talk about that as well but if you need to cut anything moderate your protein more cut down on the carbs even more don't ever count net carbs by the way it's total carbohydrates that's yeah. the only way to be intellectually honest about where you stand in your carb tolerance. But here's the thing, too. A lot of people say, well, I'm struggling with weight, so I need to do something with my diet. Guess what? It could have nothing at all to do with your diet. You could have gut dysbiosis. You could have a poor night's sleep. You could have added stress in your life. You could have uh, hormonal imbalances. You could be taking some medications that could be hindering your weight. So don't automatically assume that if you have weight happening on your body, that it's necessarily something wrong in your diet. I, I completely agree. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's cool to talk to you because like everything that you're saying and just like the lifestyle based guidelines that you're, you're throwing out there are the, like the same principles that I implement on a day-to-day -day basis. And like, you know, a lot of people, you know, you, you tell them to cut protein and they, they want to be, you know, muscle sparing with protein and as yes. a competitive bodybuilder like protein is supposed to be super high um and i spoke about this like a ketocon my my protein was down to 65 grams towards the end of my prep right now wow. crystal my girlfriend she's prepping for her first show she's like five weeks out now i believe and i mean i've got her down to 35 grams right now but wow. we've done a body composition analysis every every other week and she has lost zero muscle at 35 grams of protein wow Wow. And that's not surprising. We actually saw some research. There's this guy named Ansi Meninen that's done some really good research on the role ketones play as a muscle sparing uh, element in the body. And so uh, Crystal is definitely creating high amounts of ketones, keeping her well, she's take, keeping everything low now, so yeah. uh, that will produce ketones really high. Is she testing at all? I'm just curious. No, we haven't tested in a while. I've honestly just been like, like the way I kind of, you know, treat the whole testing aspect of it is, is I'm all about it. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything against it, but like if she's on the macros that I'm giving her, which, which she is and she feels great, she's definitely in ketosis. That's kind of the way I look at it. Right, right, right. I'm just curious how high. It'd be fun to see that. Just take a peek and see. Oh wow, wow, she's at four point seven or whatever, you know. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if she was above four for sure. Yeah. So so yeah. So uh, Ansi Meninen's um, work, I think it was like two thousand six study he did, and basically that's what he showed that the the elevation of ketones actually served as a muscle preserving 
thing. So even though Crystal's taking in 35 grams of protein and very minimal carbohydrate and very minimal food at all, the way she's keeping the muscle on is because those ketones are present. Whereas a lot of her competitors, they might be producing lower levels of ketosis just from the restriction of food, Mm -hmm. but it's the kinds of foods that they're eating that would directly impact the ability to have that uh, ketone effect on the muscles. So it'll be fun to watch once she starts eating normally again, um, you know, the, the, the muscle uh, loss, she won't lose then either. She'll actually yeah. probably put on. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. She's going to do well. Um, you, you also alluded to like the whole all meat diet. I, I know that's kind of like a super hot topic right now. Carnivore, keto. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> just dive into that. We're, we're just going to, you know, dive into all these trends right now because since yeah. you're at the top, you see them all. So I'm curious to get your opinion on them. And we're so going to be testing this. Uh, John Lemansky, my uh, Keto Hacking MD podcast co-host, I, I called him up the other day and I said, dude, this carnivore thing is ticking me off. We got to do this experiment to at least show what happens to us. And especially for me, as someone who has the insulin resistance, this is going to be a metabolic disaster for me. I already know it. Will I maybe lose some weight? Maybe, but I, I know several people that have tried this. I think yourself included that gained weight, uh, eating that much protein. Um, and then of course the, the loss of ketones, how do you call it a ketogenic diet if you have no ketones <laughs> and yeah. then blood sugar will obviously have to go up. And we're also going to test fasting insulin before and after we're going to test HSCRP for inflammatory markers before and after there's just so many ways to quantify if this is successful or not. So Keep in mind the the people that are pushing this high meat, all carnivore diet, they don't really have any studies to back it up. They don't really have any markers. In fact, uh, I think it's Dr. Sean Baker is the one that's really pushing this hard. And I've heard him on a few podcasts. Does he ever share any like blood work that he does? I think he just recently got some blood work done. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. I I have not heard it up to now. Yeah, I think I think he just recently got it done. Um, I think it all came back pretty good. Um, I don't yeah. know. I have to go look. And like you know, I, I did it. I did uh, not hardcore carnivore. Like I still had keto coffees and everything, so I'm kind of not exactly fitting the the parameters. Um, but like for me, kind of like what I was saying earlier, you know, some people are going to be able to tolerate more protein than others. But I, I right. didn't perform better. Like I, I preferred the higher fat ratio. I think the biggest mistake people make when they do carnivore is they let their protein, you know, greatly exceed their fat. Like if you do carnivore, and I've got clients that, you know, want to try it, I always recommend continuing to stay on a ketogenic macro ratio and oh. just make that come from, you know, the, the meat sources. But they're saying to eat three grams of protein for every gram of fat. Yeah, I'd, I'd never recommend that. Insane. To me, that's a recipe for disaster. And I... I If you can do well on that kind of a diet, it means your body is probably pretty darn healthy. You're pretty insulin sensitive. But here's the thing to think about. When you eat that much protein, your body cannot store protein. It has to do something with all the extra protein. It has nowhere to go except to the liver. gets converted into a usable source of energy. And no, it's not fat that it converts over to. It's glucose, which is sugar. So if you're trying to be a fat burner and you're eating a lot of protein and you're having to produce the sugar because of this excess protein, 
that ain't good. And so then that sugar goes into the bloodstream. The body uses it for energy. You start feeling really weird because you've been a fat burner and now you're shifting back to being a sugar burner because of this. And you're, you're caught between that uh, ketone and a, and a carb place <laughs> that you don't want to be in. And it gives you really bad symptoms. To me, it's just bad news all around unless you're pretty metabolically healthy already. Yeah, like when I did the experiment, I mean, my protein was, I believe, it wasn't even three to one. It was just 10 grams. My protein gram totals were, you know, exceeding my fat by like 10 grams, I think, for the day. And, gotcha. you know, I gained weight and I felt I felt more lethargic for sure. So, like, my sweet spot is above 78% of my calories coming from fat. So, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't feel good with it. Yeah, and, and yeah, so I'm at 75 to 80% of my calories from fat. And yes, yeah, so it's going to be interesting shifting over. Obviously, a lot of uh, lean meats are in my future when I do this experiment. Yeah, yeah, a lot of lean meats for sure. Um, oh my goodness, I don't know what, what's your what's your time like, Jimmy? Oh yeah, keep going, bro. I'd love to get your because I mean, if you listen to any of my podcast, I always kind of bring it around to mindset at some point or another. I'm all about the mindset, oh, of course. Um, so it, it's cool. I'd I'd love to hear your take on. You know, just just the the haters and how you cope with it, because I mean, you are kind of you know the face of keto in a lot of ways, and you get a lot of flack on the internet, people hiding behind their keyboards. Um, so how how does that affect you? What what happens you know to your psyche? Like, how do you prepare yourself to cope with that? Like, what what all what all goes into that? You know, quite frankly, uh, you know me well as a happy go lucky kind of guy. I always try to be joyful and positive and uplifting and encouraging. And that's always been my heart to do that. Unfortunately, there's some people that are intimidated by that. How can you be so happy? And you have issues still. So how, how do you get out there and talk about this? And I literally get those kind of messages day after day after day. I've even had three death threats in the 14 years I've been doing this. So it's it's pretty interesting. It's like we're, we're fighting over food? Really? Really? <laughs> uh, but how do I deal with it? Here's the short, long and short of it. It affects me. You know, how can it not? I am a human being. And at the end of the day, people forget that. They're like, oh, well, you're famous. You should be able to handle it. And I'm going, okay, yeah, but at the end of the day, I'm still a human being. And so I, I have had a difficult time handling the manifestations of it. In the day-to-day, -day, I, I shrug it off. I gladly block delete people all the time. Don't apologize for it. Love doing that <laughs> when they're really ugly. And disagreement does not get you blocked. But uh, saying ugly things about me that if you stood uh, in front of me, and most people, Robert, you know I'm six foot three and I will kick you in your head. Uh, nobody would say that to my face. And yet they say it online. So anyway. Um, so I deal with it that way. I'll tell you one strategy that I'm going to try to incorporate is I'm going to hire a social media manager that will literally shield me from all of that stuff. I love engagement on social media. I love seeing the comments that people make and 99.999% of them are awesome people really interested in your work. But then you've got those few that just say things that are like from the pit of hell. They're just so ugly. Um, and it does take, take its toll. It, and sadly to me, Robert, it prevents good people 
from coming on the internet and making a difference. And for me, that that's super sad because I think so many people like myself, I'm just a Joe Schmo. I, I don't have an MD, RD, PhD, or any D after my name. I'm just a dude out there just sharing my story and being super passionate about it. And so I wish more people would do that. But I think a lot of people fear the kind of thing that I have to deal with on a daily basis is all of these kind of wackadoodles that are out there. It is crazy. Like I, you know, you always hear about people like at the top of their game, they just have to deal with a bunch of hate mail. So like when I first started putting myself out there online, you know, started podcasting and YouTubing and whatnot, I just assumed that I would have a whole bunch of that come in. But like you said, 99.9% of it is just super positive, super encouraging. I mean, it honestly blows my mind the kind of positive feedback I get. I mean, I, I love it. I live for it. But then it's crazy how that 1%, you know, I could have 99 awesome positive emails. And then that one email is just like totally negative. And the guy's obviously yeah. just being negative. Like everything's a cuss word. I mean, it's obviously like he's just not a happy person in life. And that one just like gets in you and festers. It, it, it's, a, it's a strange phenomenon. Well, and what's interesting is I always wonder about the fat intake of these kind of people because, you, you know, neurologically, you know, you're very calm when you're at that 78% that you like to have in your, in your diet as fat. You're very calm at that level. And uh, same with fasting, by the way, it's a very calming effect because of the ketones. But I wonder, you know, like all these guys that shoot up schools and all this stuff that's been happening. Can we not look at the diet of these people and, and, and ask the questions at least, hey, what role is nutrition playing in this? Because we always want to say, oh, antipsychotics or, uh, you know, these people have issues in their past or they just have violent tendencies. Well, why do they have all those things? Could it be, let's imagine just for a moment, could it possibly be that their brains are screaming at them to eat more fat? And they've ignored it so long that they become deranged. You know, it's funny you say that. I had an email and I, I just had to just shrug it off because it was just totally negative. And uh, I, I responded back with something like, you know, funny, like, who pissed in your Cheerios? I should have responded back with, you should stop eating Cheerios. Eat more bacon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, well, cool, Jamie. I, we, we've been talking for an hour now. I don't know. I mean, I know you're like a freaking busy guy, but I want to. Yeah, uh, I got a book deadline, but that's all right, man. I'll do anything for Robert Sykes. Hey, man. Well, you, you've got you've got a lot of stuff going on. I'm just so eternally grateful for even being able to talk to you right now. And I'm excited to, you know, go to the conference, go to the cruise. Uh, Low Carb Cruise is going to be it's going to be on fire. Um, yes. I'd, I'd almost tempt to do my seven-day fast during that cruise, but then I'd miss out on all the food, so I can't do that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> um, well, we'll have, to, we'll have to get you back on here after uh, after some more of these experiments. I, I would love to get your feedback on what actually happens with you when you do the carnivore. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely do it on the Keto Hacking MD podcast. Uh, we're real excited. Well, no, neither one of us is excited about it. We're excited to kind of maybe add more data like you did, like uh, Danny Vega did, like Trent Holbert did, all you guys did this carnivore and you saw bad results. I I think I will see bad results, but I don't know until we try it. So yeah, it'll be fun to to test that and uh, and then get back to fasting to wash it out again. <laughs> yeah, and the thing about it, you know, like a lot of people get on it and they see great results, but they're coming on it, you know, from eating a bunch of crap. Or, you yes. know, they, they might even see good results um, if they weren't like really, really deep into ketosis, but right. just, just what I've experienced, like the deeper you are into ketosis, like a true ketosis, 
Like it's almost like a step backwards. It was for me. But again, I don't want to put a blanket statement out there for everybody. Well, and think about people that switch over to a vegan diet. They say the same thing. Oh my gosh, I've never felt so amazing in my life. But you look at what they ate before and it was like, Jimmy Moore circa 2004 with 16 cans of Coca-Cola. Yeah. Had I tried, had my mom given me, uh, my mother-in-law given me a vegan book for Christmas, I probably would have felt good. And we might have had a Live in La Vida vegan uh, blog. I'm just kidding. That would never have happened. Uh, <laughs> Steak's just so much better. Yes, exactly. We get bacon and butter. That's right. That's right. Um, well, Jimmy, anybody, I mean, everybody should... I mean, they find they find you anywhere, but where where would you uh, point people to if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, livinglavidalowcarb.com. Uh, very soon, we're going to have that site totally overhauled, so it has all of my podcasts, all of my books. Uh, I have a new book out April 10th called The Keto Cure. Uh, that really excited to get out there with Dr. Adam Nally, Doc Muscles on uh, on there. Doc Muscles would be hilarious on your show. You should definitely try to get him on. Yeah, I'll check uh, him out. And then recipes from the lovely Maria Emmerich. So always hustling, brother, and got more books coming uh, in the fall. The one I'm finishing up now is with my wife, Christine, called Real Food Keto. Because uh, a lot of keto people are still eating junk, and they're wondering, why, why am I not seeing results? And so we talk about why real food is such a key component to a well-formulated ketogenic diet. Yeah, that, that would be... We're just, we're just gonna have to do like another follow up podcast. Every time you publish a, a book that just <laughs> is groundbreaking, earth shattering, we seem to do another podcast and talk about it. Hey, I, I'm game for that, man. And I, I really love you and Crystal coming on uh, the Instagram lives and, and all that. Guys, if you're not following them, go follow them on Instagram. It's really good. Was it 7 a.m. Eastern? Uh, you guys pop on there, but I guess before you go to the gym. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a lot of fun uh, seeing you chit chat while you're sipping coffee and. And Crystal's scolding you for doing something. Yeah, that's 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 my norm, man. That's that's the that's the reality of my day to day. It's called living with a girl, and my girl, she she keeps me straight too, man. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Jimmy, again, man, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch for sure. It's my pleasure, bud. All right, see you, buddy. <laughs>